let's, let's read from, uh, from Luke chapter 24. We, we started our, our journey through Luke uh, when we first moved out of this building back in, uh, back in June. And uh, we've been pressing through this, this whole gospel. And it's just been great to see what Jesus has, has said along the way, what he's said to us as well. But we come now to the, the very last chapter in the, in the Gospel of Luke. But I want to read uh, from verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking, talking with each other about everything that had happened And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem that you do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. Well, this whole chapter of Luke is packed full of accounts of the risen Jesus appearing to people before he finally ascended into heaven. It it seems particularly appropriate, I guess, that we've come to this last chapter in Luke, the week after Easter, and uh, it's so good to focus on Jesus' resurrection. I want to focus particularly this morning on this story of these two dejected followers of Jesus on their way to Emmaus. Now, we don't know exactly who these people were. Only one of them is named, and that's Cleopas. But it seems that they were part of Jesus' closest circle of followers outside of the 11 apostles. The first people to see Jesus alive were the women who went to Jesus' tomb. 
And it says earlier in the chapter, we didn't read it, but in verse 9 it says that the women came back from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. And it's likely that Cleopas and his friend were included in all the others. And they then set off to the village of Emmaus, confused and bewildered about everything that was going on. And you could just picture the scene. These two guys trudging along the road, just talking with each other, their footsteps probably a bit slow, a bit heavy. But then they realise that somebody is walking up behind them and that person's walking purposefully and beginning to catch them up. And then they, as he draws level, he, he then matches their pace, so they're walking together. And I just love the way that Luke states it. He says, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. You see, this was Jesus. Jesus himself. This was no vision or hallucination. Both men were there. They both saw Jesus walk alongside them. And this was no ghost. This was no disembodied spirit. Jesus didn't float alongside them. He walked. He kicked stones and and left footprints in the dust. This was Jesus. Risen from the dead. He walked with them. He talked with them. And later on, he ascended up into heaven. And he is there right now. Jesus was dead, but then he was alive. And he's still alive today. And he always will be. It's so important that you realise that when you talk about Jesus, or you pray to Jesus, or you sing to Jesus, you're addressing a person who is alive. This is the resurrection of Jesus. It's not just a a nice ending to the story. It's certainly not some sugar-coated ending just made up to make a nice ending like in some cheap Hollywood film. The resurrection of Jesus is an essential, fundamental part of everything we believe. I think the worst thing you can think is that Christianity is nothing more than a philosophy of life or a set of beliefs or a certain point of view. And that Jesus was was just a, a wise man or a prophet. But if you take out the resurrection, then that's all you're left with. But true Christianity is masses more than that. We have a relationship with the risen Jesus. When we worship, we worship the risen Jesus. Paul wrote to the Galatians, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So Christianity, it stands apart from every other religion, every other philosophy, in that its main figure, Jesus, is alive and well and working with power and authority. He's building his church, actively building his church. He said he would do that. He sits at God's right hand and intercedes for you. And when you become a Christian, you are joined into Jesus. Like a branch being grafted into a living vine where there is life and power and vitality. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, he meant those who had died, are lost. If only for this life... We have hope in Christ. We are to be pitied more than all men. And what he's saying was, if even Jesus didn't rise from the dead, 
then what hope have we got? We're wasting our time. We're looking pretty stupid along the way. But then he goes on, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. You see, Paul was never in doubt about the fact of Jesus' resurrection. On the contrary, he was showing how ridiculous it is to ever even question it. There is massive evidence in support of Jesus' resurrection. Let me throw out just a few things as I start here. You see, firstly, there's the activity of the early church. There was never a time when the early church had to be taught about the resurrection as a matter of doctrine. It was simply an agreed fact. In the same way that Jesus existed and that he was crucified, he then rose from the dead. It's just what happened. Nobody questioned it. When Peter addressed the crowd at Pentecost, he was recounting historical events. In Acts 2.23, he says, This man, that's Jesus, was handed over to you. You put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. And the result of Peter saying this wasn't that the crowd said, well, no, he didn't. Rather, it says that people were cut to the hearts and repented. And then, of course, you only have to look at the the disciples themselves. Moments before the resurrection, they were a, a silent and fearful bunch without any hope or certainty for the future. Peter didn't even have enough confidence to talk to a slave girl. And yet, just weeks later, he could address thousands at Pentecost. And similarly, with the other apostles who went on to establish the church, even though it meant martyrdom for most of them. So what brought about this transformation? Well, it happened when they received the commissioning and empowering of the risen Jesus. And it's difficult to imagine anything else having such a profound effect upon them. One of the first things the apostles do, even before Pentecost, is appoint another apostle to replace Judas. And so they can take their number back up to 12. But the criterion for being an apostle, you can read it at the end of Acts 1, is that they had seen the risen Jesus being taken up into heaven. It wasn't enough just to have believed it, they had to have seen it for themselves. So the others said that the replacement must become a witness with us of the resurrection. And so if you're looking for evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead, you can just look at the activity of the early church. But then secondly, there is the evidence of the accounts of resurrection itself. See, there's really two major aspects to the resurrection accounts. On the one hand, there is the empty tomb. And on the other hand, there's the appearance of Jesus to different groups of people. And both things were essential. You see, it would have been no good to have had the disciples reporting that Jesus had appeared to them if his body was still in the tomb. They would just have been written off as lunatics, or at very least people who would have just said they'd seen a ghost. But similarly, it would have been no good if the tomb had been empty, but Jesus had never appeared to anybody. People would have just assumed that the the body had been stolen. And yet what happened was both things in conjunction. Empty tomb, encounters with Jesus. And that would have been immensely difficult to fabricate, especially for a bunch of fearful disciples. And yet Jesus appeared to over 500 people on different occasions. 
And then you have the fact that all the four Gospels describe the resurrection as well as the book of Acts and Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And these passages all read like eyewitness accounts. This is just people telling it like it happened. And what you have to realise is that fiction or made-up stories just didn't exist in those days. It hadn't been invented yet as a form of literature. And if the disciples were going to make up a story, then frankly, they would have not made themselves look so daft. Because what you see is the the disciples running around and and being a bit slow on the uptake. And it's unlikely they would have chosen women to be the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Because women were generally reckoned at that time to be unreliable witnesses. Professor Thomas Arnold The former chair of history at Oxford says this, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. So believing with certainty that Jesus rose from the dead is not an option for a Christian. The whole of Christianity either stands or falls on the resurrection. But the evidence is compelling. And if you're not a Christian, if you've never found out about this Jesus for yourself, if you've never made him Lord of your life, then the evidence is quite difficult for you to deal with as well. Because for most people, it's not believing that Jesus rose from the dead that is the problem. It's daring to follow through with the implications. Because if Jesus rose again, then he vindicates himself. And what he said about himself is shown to be true. Well, he said that he is the Son of God. That he became human so that he could die. And in dying, he paid the price for your sins. He said that he was the only way that people could obtain eternal life and a relationship with Almighty God. He said all that. And his resurrection vindicates his claims. It also means that he is alive today. That he is the creator. And he created you because he loves you. He deserves your worship. Make sure that you follow through with the implications of Jesus' resurrection in your life. And the implications are massive. He is alive. And he's waiting for you to call on him. We all need to do that. If you've never done that before, then you especially need to do that. Do that this morning. Call on Jesus. Well, for these two disciples on their way to Emmaus, the the fact of Jesus' resurrection had a profound effect. In fact, you could say that a transformation occurred. And this transformation had three aspects that I want to look at for, for the remainder of our time this morning. You see, firstly, they turned from dejection to joy. When they left Jerusalem, they were low. They were depressed. Things hadn't turned out as they expected. The adrenaline of the last few days had just left them exhausted. 
And Jesus, their friend and teacher, had been taken from them. So now they had no compass in their lives to know what to do next. Nobody to turn to for advice. And all these things weighed heavily on their shoulders. There was just nothing to look forward to anymore. And their footsteps were heavy and slow as they walked along the road. And when Jesus came and, and asked them quite cheerily what they were talking about, it was, it was like that was the last straw. And it says, they stood still, their faces downcast. It's almost like that very question was enough to draw that last bit of energy from them. And they, they ground to a halt. Their shoulders slumped. Well, it may be that you can relate to how the disciples were feeling on that day. Life is always hectic, but there are also seasons of intense pressure. You might feel yourself that you're in one of those right now. There's, there's all the pressures from work. I think work pressure can be quite a lonely sort of pressure because those who care about you the most can never fully understand what it is you're carrying and responsible for at work. And yet it's always there in the back of your mind. And then there's pressure from home, making sure the kids have everything you need and and you're investing in their lives properly and, and just getting food on the table and making sure the house is kept up together. There may be financial worries. There may be health issues in your immediate family or or your extended family that just seem to cut across everything. And on top of that, there's church-related things, things you want to do, but it's all getting too much. And if you're not careful, your life can start to lose the joy that it once had. How would you rate your life? this morning on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of the amount of joy that you are currently experiencing. Well, the disciples on that day were down at a score of of 1, 2 maybe, probably 1, 1 out of 10. And when Jesus asked them what they were talking about, Cleopas replied and his answer was tinged with a bit of sarcasm. Are you only a visitor that you don't understand what has been going on? And when you're feeling low and and maybe you come to church or you feel God begin to speak to you, your response can be the same to him. Don't you understand, Lord? Don't you understand, God, what it is like to be me? Don't you understand what I've had to go through and the pressure that I'm under? Well, when you forward wine to the end of the story... The disciples looked very different from how they did at the start. You see, a transformation had occurred. It doesn't actually say what they were feeling, but it's pretty clear from their words and their actions that their dejection had been replaced by joy. And they're now buzzing with life. And what changed is that they had an encounter with the risen Jesus. You know, we could take your life And we could analyse it. We could look at all the different parts and how much time and energy they take up. And we could come up with strategies for what you might do differently. But you know, if you want to experience more joy in your life, it really only boils down to one thing. Have more encounters with the risen Jesus. And you might dismiss that as way too simplistic. You might think, come on, my life is just more complicated than that. 
But what you would really be saying in that case is, don't you understand, Lord? Have you missed what's been going on here? Are you only a visitor here? Well, actually, Jesus knows everything about your life. And yet he also knows about joy. And the Bible has a lot to say about joy. In no way is joy an optional extra for a Christian or something that realistically can only be obtained by a chosen few. In fact, the opposite is true. It's a a command. It says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Be joyful always. And the secret to finding this joy is to lift your eyes off of the details of your life and place them on Jesus. Let him be the focus of your life. Spend time worshipping him. Read about him in the Bible. Meditate on every aspect of Jesus' character that you can think of. In every situation of your life, ask yourself, what would make my Jesus proud of me here? What would make him smile back at me in this situation? When I find life creeping up on me personally, and I find that the pressure is on, one of the first things that happens to me, actually, is that I I lose my sense of joy. Ali will tell you it's, it's true. I go a bit quiet, I get a bit withdrawn, a bit melancholy, really. That's my character. But when I see this happening, one of my favourite places to go in the Bible is to 1 Peter, Peter's first epistle. You see, Peter there was writing to Christians everywhere who were having a tough time, facing attack and persecution. In his opening words, he calls them strangers in the world who are scattered and being sanctified through obedience And when I compare myself to them, I usually reckon that they were having a tougher time than I'm having right now. But what Peter does is he points them and me to Jesus. In 1 Peter 1 verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So how could they, with all that persecution, experience that kind of joy? Well, they put their focus on Jesus. Encounters with the risen Jesus. The disciples turned from dejection to joy. The second transformation that the disciples experienced was from ignorance to revelation. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. See, the disciples thought that having lived with Jesus, they understood everything about his mission. The problem was that much of their thinking still came from Jewish tradition, rather than a proper understanding of scripture. You see, the Jews longed for this day when the Messiah would come and restore the nation of Israel. The people of Israel would be gathered together in the land of Israel and uh, the Romans would be booted out and the Messiah would reign from the temple in Jerusalem. And so when Jesus came along, he seemed to fit the bill perfectly. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. 
But clearly things hadn't turned out as they had expected. Jesus had been arrested, sentenced to death and crucified. And perhaps the disciples' whole attitude is summarised in their next three words. We had hoped. See, they had their own expectation of Jesus. And they stayed quite a lot upon it. But when it didn't happen, when it came to nothing, they were left disappointed. And I know that many people approach God in the same way. Effectively saying, I had hoped. I wanted this for my life. I wanted this particular thing. I wanted to be in this place. I wanted to be in this relationship. You had it all planned out. You even prayed into it. But it didn't come off. And so when you come to God, you come disappointed. Well, Lord, I had hoped. And this was the position of the disciples. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But then Jesus did an amazing thing. He began to teach them from Scripture. He brought passages of the Bible to them. Actually, passages of Scripture that weren't new to them. They would have been familiar words. Jesus didn't whip a new book out of the, Bi- book of the Bible out of his pocket and say, well, actually, this is now new. No, he used familiar words. But what he brought was even more powerful than words. You see, Jesus brought revelation. This was the activity of the risen Jesus, and it still is. He showed the disciples on that day that actually he had accomplished far more than they could ever imagine. They had wanted him to redeem Israel, but he had in mind an entirely new Israel, made up of all nations. They saw the crucifixion as an ending. But he showed them that actually the cross was a place of victory that would enable glory to be brought to God and his people. And they thought that all hope was lost. But he showed them that hope had now been established. You see, he took scripture and he brought revelation. And they saw the bigger picture. God's plan was so much bigger than their own. And when you have a big view of God that is properly based in Scripture, it is impossible for him to disappoint you. Because God's not at your beck and call like a a magic wand to wave over your plans. No, God in his sovereignty has the plan. He has a massive plan. It's a plan that spans all generations. But you're not irrelevant to the plan. You're a a key part of it. And he so loves you that that you will be um, blessed through this plan. And you will benefit from it. But it is his plan. I don't think it's wrong to have personal goals. Of course it's right to pray into things and bring our requests to our Heavenly Father. But remember, when things don't go your way, remember that God's way is bigger than your way. What you interpret as failure or lack of answer to prayer can so often be a vital step, even an advance in God's sovereign plan. And he never for one moment stops being worthy of your thanks and praise. You see, we need to get revelation from Scripture. 
And to get revelation from scripture, you need the work of the risen Jesus. When Jesus said, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What he was really saying, if I can paraphrase it, is any fool can read scripture. But I expect something more from you. I expect you to read it and understand. He was saying, you need revelation. And it's still true today. Sadly, any fool can read the Bible, and, uh, and many do. There are many who have theology degrees or even lecture in them that are very familiar with what the Bible says, but it has no impact on their lives. There are even people leading churches and preparing sermons on the Bible who have never themselves trusted in Jesus as their Lord. Well, they're fools. Jesus describes them as fools because they're in exactly the same camp as these two disciples. You see, words are never enough on their own. Not even words from the Bible. What you need is revelation. And revelation comes from encounters with the risen Jesus. Yeah, the preaching of God's word has always been important to us as a church. You know, it will continue to be so. We need to make sure we always give proper time to just hearing from God's word. In this building... We want this to be a place, yeah, where we enjoy being together and we experience God in our worship. But I also want this to be a place where God's truth is proclaimed clearly. I want it to be famous for that. I want people to know that when they come here, they're going to be served up with a a feast of the, the choicest morsels from God's table. More than anything else, I want people to receive revelation. Have their eyes and hearts opened. To see things about God and his purposes that they have never seen before. Well, to take scripture and, and turn it into revelation, we need anointed preaching, of course. Always pray for those entrusted to bring God's word to you. Especially if it's me, pray for me. Please do that. But you also need, you also need receptive hearts. At any time, the disciples could have told this stranger on the road to, to clear off. Mind his own business. But there was a hunger in their spirit to hear the truth. They described it later as a a burning in their hearts. Well, when you come to the scriptures, either privately or, or in the context of our Sunday morning preach together, have a heart that is wide open to receive the truth. Pray that God will speak to you personally by his Holy Spirit. It's the work of the risen Jesus to take scripture and build faith. And bring revelation of things in God that you have never understood in the same way before. And then finally, thirdly, the disciples experienced a transformation from passivity to activity. When Jesus first arrived on the scene and began to walk with the disciples along the road, you get the sense that they were fairly indifferent to Jesus' presence with them. They didn't seem to mind Jesus being there, but it wasn't as if they'd called Jesus over. He'd just come over to them. But by the end of their journey, a transformation had occurred. See, Jesus acted as if he was planning to continue his journey. He was going to leave them, but it says, they urged him strongly. Stay with us. See, 
Let me, let, while the siren's going on, let me just stop to get the feather or something out of my mouth. There we go. They urged him strongly, stay with us. All their indifference had now gone. Now they were desperate to keep this man with them. Far from being passive and whatever about it, now they were active and persuasive. They said, you don't want to carry on, Lord. Look, the sun is is almost setting. The next village is miles. And we've got space and we've got food. Come in. Come in and stay with us. How desperate are you to know the presence of the risen Jesus in your life? How desperate are you to know the presence of Jesus in this church? Do you know, I first felt God lay this passion, this passage on my heart a few months ago when Ali and I had, had stayed in the hotel in Bournemouth. Because you drive into the hotel car park, there is a sign that says, Welcome to the Miramar Hotel. And when I saw that sign, I thought, oh, that's nice. But later on I thought, what is that sign really saying to me? What is the the hotel manager trying to, to say to me? What he's saying is, if I want to stay in his hotel, that's okay with him. And he's quite glad to take my money as well, I'm sure. Well, sometimes we sing songs, don't we? We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. When what we're really doing is we're putting up a sign that says, okay, Jesus, if you want to come here, then that's okay with us. But if you don't want to come, then that's okay too, whatever. I had this mental image of the hotel manager running out into the road and holding his arms out in front of my car as I drove up so that I just couldn't drive further down the road. And then him coming over to the the window and, and pleading with me saying, you just cannot drive further. You must come in here. You've just got to stay in my hotel. Well, it's a ridiculous scenario, isn't it? But yeah, it's exactly how we should be with Jesus. He's not just welcome amongst us, although of course he is. We're desperate for him to be amongst us. Heaven help us if we're not. We need the risen Jesus in every area of church life. We need Jesus in our children's work. We need him in our youth work. We need him with our our students. We need Jesus in our community groups. You shouldn't be pleasantly surprised if on a particular evening you feel that you encountered Jesus in your community group. They should be desperate for it, hungry for it, praying for it, wholly dissatisfied with anything else. And of course, when we meet here all together to hear God's word, to worship together, we need Jesus amongst us like we need nothing else. And only when the disciples had urged Jesus to stay with them were their eyes finally opened and they recognised that this was God in their presence. Now, I think we have great times of worship. We did this morning. We know God's presence with us, praise God. Let's never take that for granted. Heaven forbid we should ever get into a routine of of just doing church. Let's keep praying and praying that Jesus would come and meet with us. Keep speaking to us prophetically. That he will come time and time again and bring healing and encouragement 
and also to provoke us and, and stir us. And the last thing I'll say just quickly is the disciples were transformed from passivity to activity in that now they just had to spread the word. And they returned to Jerusalem and and the message being proclaimed by the, the disciples back there as well was, it is true, the Lord has risen. That was their testimony. And it's the testimony of, of every Christian here this morning. It is true. The Lord has risen. But the difference is, is that when you have an encounter with the risen Jesus, you just can't hold it in. You have to tell someone. And that can mean putting yourself out. For the disciples, it meant immediately making the seven-mile journey all the way back to Jerusalem. And for you, it might mean stopping to talk to your neighbour, even though you're busy. Or talking to that person at work, even though you're going to look a bit silly. You see, it all becomes worthwhile, not when you are motivated by guilt or a sense of duty, but when you have been in the presence of Jesus and felt something of his compassion for the unsaved people around you. If you want to increase your passion for sharing your faith with others, then get to know Jesus better. If the central pillar around which you build your life is regular and meaningful, encounters with Jesus, then it will be the most natural thing in the world for you to declare loud and clear, it is true. The Lord has risen. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you can now enter freely into God's presence. Hebrews 4 says, Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Where you can't truly come into God's presence and not be changed in some way. Because encounters with the risen Jesus have a transforming effect. Whether that's from dejection to joy or ignorance to revelation, passivity to activity or, or something else. It's always for your good. It's always for your ultimate blessing. So let's eagerly desire the presence of Jesus in our lives. Let's eagerly desire the presence of Jesus in this church. As we go forward in this building, it's already starting to feel familiar, isn't it? But as we go forward in this place, whatever we are doing, let's eagerly desire that we encounter Jesus in every area of this church. Amen? Amen.